two guys with an accent. <laughs> yeah, immigrants, we get the job done. From the Jewish Founders Network, welcome to season two of What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pukoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. We'll kick off this season with a conversation with Barry Feinstone, President and CEO of the Jean Joseph Foundation. I was actually thrilled to speak to Barry about his work. He's a brilliant leader in Jewish philanthropy who is taking on the task of shepherding a major foundation through a time of significant change. And we talk in this conversation about how to stay true to a mission while shifting the strategic approach, among other things. Have a listen. We both came from different communities. We're working now in the North American context. What do you think that you bring from from your life in Scotland that is informing the way in which you approach communal life in the U.S.? Yeah, it's it, 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 it's a really great question. I mean, the, the the context of growing up in in Scotland, and and I would probably say any anywhere in Britain, anywhere in Europe, and maybe anywhere in South America. Um, you know, and, and you can you know correct me if, if, if I'm wrong about this. Is that uh, you, you know the, the the old line that used to be asked in, in, at Hebrew school or in Jewish circles in America, if there was a war between America and Israel, who would you fight for, right? Which you know is obviously you know a little bit of a ridiculous question in many ways, but but that was kind of the frame. And the reason why that question is so fascinating was so fascinating to me was that question would would never apply itself. Um, Outside of most of uh, most communities, uh, apart from America, um, you know, being a Jew in Scotland, you're always the other, right? Uh, you're, you're just always a Jew, right? You're, you're, you know, I'm proud to be from Scotland, and I'm a proud Scot, but I'm a Jew, um, and that's fundamentally because you know, just of the way society, you know, operates, etc. Whereas coming to America, it was incredibly eye-opening for me to to understand that. Being a Jew and being active in Jewish life um, was very much a choice, um, you know, and, and particularly, obviously, um, I, I'm speaking in the realms of the non-Orthodox community that exists, you know, here in North America. So I think, you know, coming from Scotland and 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 being instilled with this sense of um, of being a Jew first and foremost, um, you know, has allowed me to to and also to have a, a background that was based on some level of literacy about our religion because of the upbringing and because of the uh, um, because of the schooling etc allows me to kind of you know sit at a table and have robust discussions about these types of things and at the same time to be fully open to the models that are that American Jewry brings to you know to the world and you know I mean I can just tell you that it was a very jarring experience for me to walk into a synagogue in North America and hear a woman 
rabbi. Not because it's a bad thing, clearly not, um, but because I just I just never been brought. I, I, it was just completely foreign to me, you know. And I think over over a period of a few years, you know, I really got to kind of immerse myself into the American community and to understand not just how much perhaps I can bring to this community, but how much this community can bring to me. Um, and I think my my evolution as a Jew um, has been uh, deeply, uh, you know, is, is been deeply profound and based on um, both the experience I had in Scotland and the experiences of, that I've had here. Uh, same, same here. I mean, it, it becomes part of a mix of a composite identity with all these pieces. But one thing that that stays with me from my own upbringing is the a more expansive view of what being Jewish is. I remember when I first came to North America, for many Jews and non-Jews alike, Judaism is mainly a religion. You're a citizen like anybody else. You're an American like anybody else. You just have a different religion. Just kind of back to the 19th century German model of German citizens of mosaic uh, religion. Now, I grew up thinking that, that Judaism was much more than that a national identity, an ethnic identity. You could, you could totally be non-religious and even anti-religious and be strongly Jewish. And that, I think, enriched how I looked at the, at the opportunities for communal engagement in America itself. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, you know, I, 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 I agree. And I, I, mean, I think the additive, the opening of the, the white tent of Judaism that exists in North America um, has been not just incredible for me personally, but also incredible for our family. The notion that, you know, Judaism for me growing up, while incredibly rich and based, you know, very much on the family and on tradition and ritual, and there is still place for that, and I believe an important place for that, but the opening up of different ways to view Judaism and, you know, you know, I, I think you and I might have had this conversation before, Andres, you know, you know, the name Mordechai Kaplan and Judaism as a civilization, you know, was kind of foreign to me, if you will, foreign to me, both from a knowledge base and from a living base, um, where Judaism was, you know, was, was, was seen only through a ritual, a, a ritual base. And it was very much seen through the lens of kind of good and bad Jews right or wrong Jews, more or less Jewish. Um, and I think my move here has kind of opened that up um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an expansive way, um, which I'm incredibly grateful for. don't see in today's Jewish community the likes of Mordechai Kaplan and Solomon Schechter and Rabbi Soloveitchik and, and um, are you as a funder, as a communal leader concerned by that lack of sort of ideas and philosophy and theologies? Yeah, um, so for sure, yes. I, I think I would push back a little bit or at least theorize I have a hunch that that these people actually do exist. These great minds are there. These uh, deep thinkers are there. 
Um, it's just that the communal infrastructure is, um, you know, they're not sitting on the right seat on the bus. And the expectations, which, by the way, I think often come from the funding world. So I, you know, I kind of lay blame at, 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 at our feet. The expectations are um, about instant gratification, about kind of like, what have you done for me lately? Um, and so the way that the world operates is, well, if you if you did this and you got 100 people to attend and it was really good, then here's a little bit more money and maybe you can get 125 people to attend. And while numbers are important, you know, that, that stifles the notion of people actually thinking. So the notion of thinking and vision has um, its value has depreciated um, over the years. And I think, by the way, I would say that that has followed a secular trend. Right. Right. So secular trends around around big thinking and R&D and everything were, you know, were around 70 to 80 years ago, you know, you know, putting somebody on the moon, big, big things. And then we kind of have moved into, you know, kind of, well, you know, the idea can be good, but it's got to have a monetary value to it. Um, because An I immediate have, monetary right, value. Right. It show me how it's going to add value quickly because I need the share price of the company to go up, etc. And I think in the last few years, we've seen a little bit of a turn back, uh, which I think we, hopefully where, you know, where the R&D world, if you will, has moved a little bit of a way from that, you know, with some of the some of the tech companies, you know, starting their skunk works that are saying, just go and think and come back to us. And, you know, they're thinking about, you know, putting internet in balloons up in the air so that they can have access or self-driving cars, mm. you know, or, came or Google hiring philosophers for their uh, development teams. Right. So, it, it, you know, it's interesting. We in the Jewish world follow secular trends, even though we don't think we do. We, we undoubtedly do. And I think that uh, maybe there's a little bit of a turn happening here. And we're starting to you know, think about that and begin to invest in that in some way so that we can actually give people the room and the scope to actually be thinking. Right. Because if not, you have great minds and uh, intellectuals mainly running organizations, doing uh, operations, fundraising, and not doing the things that the community needs them to do, which is sitting down and, and, and thinking and developing new ideas and new theories about what being Jewish means. Right, precisely. And, and look, I, I think it requires, on behalf of the community um, and its leadership, it requires an act of selflessness because, because you're actually saying, go and think, go and develop, and recognizing the fact that the outcome of that thinking and ideas, you might not be around the table to see what happens, right? And, and in that sense, you know, that, that is a very kind of like a, a very Jewish idea about, about sowing the seeds, about, about putting something in place for future generations. And, and I think we've got sucked up into this kind of need for an instant return. You guys at the Jim Joseph Foundation are actually walking the talk on this. Your long-term investment in Hartman, for example, goes on these lines, correct? Of investing yeah. in ideas and letting people giving people the room to think and to and to create curriculum and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean I think there are two kind of parallel tracks here. So, you know, completely Hartman's a great example of, you know, an organization where we've actually been funding for a number of years 
but on a particular program. And as we got to know the organization and got to understand them better and got to got to really immerse ourselves with uh, with a funding partner, the correct foundation and understanding what they were doing and why they were doing it, it seemed a much better bet for us to move away from program to actually giving them the room and the space so that they could build build out their infrastructure and really begin to think about that. And even in the early stages of that grant, um, you know, we're seeing some early signs where the production of ideas and, and thought papers is ramping up. The other parallel track is also just around the notion of general operating support, that if one can find a partner long term, the, the, the theory that the foundation has for some of its uh, larger signature grants are around, here's a bucket of money. We've been in relationship with you. We trust you. And the innovation and new ideas are actually going to come when you are less burdened by directed funding. Um, and again, that's not to say that it's an either or, because there are many occasions where directed funding is a good thing and is necessary. Although I would hasten to add that when that is the case, that one also must be looking at the overhead that it takes to run a program as opposed to just funding the program itself. Right. And this is an, an issue I wanted to uh, discuss with you, which is the issue of overhead, which has been a uh, a battle of mine for a long time at the Jewish Funders Network to get funders to understand the need for funding overhead and capacity. And you recently published a, a great op-ed with uh, Lisa Eisen from the Schusterman Foundation, you know, about that, about the need in the Jewish community to recognize that organizations need what we call overhead, which is nothing else than the basic capacity that they need to operate. Right, right. I mean, look, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm going to steal a line from my, uh, you know, my, my, my dear friend and, 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 uh, and, and colleague um, and, and, and board member here, at, you, know, you know, Jeff Solomon. You don't walk into Starbucks in the morning and when you order your latte, you just say to them, I just want to pay for the milk and I just want to pay for the coffee. Yeah. Right. That's all I'm paying for here. Right. They, they say, well, you're not getting your coffee. Right. You have to pay for the lights. You have to pay for the. You have to pay for the health benefits of the of the employee. You have to. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. And in, and in our world, the deliverable of good product is hundred and fifty percent correlated to the people that work in the field. Right. I always say at presentations, I make a point of saying, if the health of your body is somehow related to the skill of your doctor. Um, then the health of the Jewish community is directly related to those that work in it and run it. And if we're not going to cover the overhead that that entails, which includes you know, competitive salaries and good benefits um, and all the other nuts and bolts that it takes to run yeah. something, then we're going to get an inferior, uh, an, an inferior product. It's like an airline making a commercial that says, fly with us, we spend very little in pilot training. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I remember um, at one point in my career when I was running an organization, it was during a downtime in the economy and during a recession. And we presented, the professional team presented to the board the annual budget for the organization. And uh, as we're looking at the budget, you know, I had, uh, I had increased the professional development line for our team. And, you know, the board was like chopping it apart, you know, and, 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 you know, and, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive for them that DAFCA, this is actually the time when you need to be investing in your team. 
right? You know, we're asking people to do more work, you know, maybe with some less resources because of the recession, et cetera. So there's a, there's a fundamental shift that needs to take place. And, you know, we were, you know, the, the article that came out um, a few months ago from uh, the, kind of the big five secular foundations, you know, Ford and Packard and Hewler, Hewlett, et cetera, who were really saying, look, this is a must. Um, and I would just, you know, go on record as saying, I think it's a no brainer. And until we, uh, until we really fully embrace it as a community, we are leaving a tremendous amount on the table about the work that our organizations are doing. Right. When you tell somebody, I'm going to give you only 10% overhead, we know that no organization in the world, nonprofit or for-profit, operates with a 10% overhead. Right, right. And so what people do is they just find all sorts of ways of calling it something else, when in fact, it would be much healthier to have a conversation about what's the capacity that they really need and how we can help them get it. Right, right. No, exactly. It's also fascinating to me that the, I mean, I think one of the reasons why the conversation is so interesting at this particular time is we're living, we're living in the last 10 years, um, you know, through like an unprecedented economic boom, right? Now we can get into a different conversation about the goods and bads of that and and, and the gaps between the haves and the have-nots. And that is a very worthwhile discussion. But the point I'm making is that um, from a philanthropy standpoint, this is not a time of economic scarcity. There are tons of money trees out there with money on them. And, um, and, and, and it seems like if we're still holding back at this point in time, that is worrisome. a general critique of the role of big funders and big foundations. I mean, there's a series of books that came out, you know, like Winner Take All and Decolonizing Wealth and what have you. There, there seems to be sort of an argument out there that, you know, foundations have an outside influence and they have no accountability. And in a way, they impact negatively the democratic nature of society or community. Do you see some of that in the Jewish community that worries you? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a fascinating topic, right? And, um, and it, you know, gets to, you know, it gets to the, you know, the core issue of, of, of power and money. And um, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts around it. I mean, the first thing is that I think it's very, I, 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 was, I was in a meeting in, uh, in New York several months ago uh, where people were presenting some ideas about philanthropy. And it became very clear to me that, and this issue came up, it became very clear to me that philanthropy is painted, Jewish philanthropy is painted with a very, very broad brush, right? And I think that's a mistake. I think there are philanthropies and foundations and individuals that uh, use their power. um, And there are some that don't, there are some that use it less, recognizing that that everybody everybody has it. so that's kind of the that's kind of the first thing. The the, the second thing is that uh, on a practical level, I'm not quite sure what the what a positive how, how a modelled outcome would be different, right? In other words, I don't see foundations and large philanthropy going away, and um, the, the, so so the place where I go to is this is a field that requires very little training 
I never trained to become a philanthropy profession, right? Um, and so I think that um, this is a burgeoning industry that is at the beginning of its lifespan in the Jewish community, not at the end, very, very much at the beginning. And I'm hopeful that over a period of years that both philanthropists and the people that they, that the, the principals and the people that they employ recognize that uh, people need to be trained in this field to do this well, to do this properly, to use humility, not to, not to be arrogant, etc. And I think we have to cut ourselves a little bit of slack in the sense that we're at the beginning of this cycle, not at the end of it. There were no major foundations in the Jewish world many years ago. And there are very few staff foundations. Um, and, and so I, it doesn't quite answer your question, but I think the issue of, uh, of democratizing it um, is probably a little too far out there. But I think if we could somehow make uh, best practices available to the people that are running these things, I think it would mitigate some of this. Right. And it, well, you actually alluded to, yes, something we've been talking about, which is training and professional development, especially in the, in the area of power management. You know, many of, the, many of that feeling in the outside, in the, in the secular community is about the way in which power is being used. Not necessarily that power is being used. I mean, it's a good thing to use power in a good way, right? But the ethical limitations of, of, of that. And the other thing, I mean, I think that what you were referring before uh, you know, in terms of transparency and being clear about about what you stand for and what your criteria are, doesn't make you democratic per se. But your actions seem less less whimsical for the outside world, and at least they understand where you're coming from and what your goals are and what your processes are. Right, which is which was really a driving force behind you know um, you know this part of this this part of the strategy for the foundation was really to try and delineate for, for, for us internally and then externally, this is what we do and this is what we, this is what we don't do. Let, let's talk a little bit about something that the Jim Joseph Foundation is heavily invested in, which is the issue of Jews of color. I take this issue of Jews of color as, a, as an example of how the Jewish community is changing. Uh, we have in our heads the image of a Jew, which is mainly white, Ashkenazi, probably male. Um, and yet, in the city you live, in San Francisco... Yes, it's a significant number. Right. So how you deal with this changing face of the Jewish community? Yeah, look, this is an initiative that we and a number of our funding partners have have have, have you know gotten involved in, and 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 you know the the, the play here is to is to is to build a field. The play, the, the play here is to uh, is to is to really you know raise this uh, raise this issue. And you know, I, I can tell you, um, you know, for the people that are listening to this, um, I, I was I, I happened to be in synagogue a few weeks ago for. Uh, for a friend's uh, daughter's bat mitzvah, um, and at some point uh, during the service, when I perhaps was not as primarily primarily focused on the text as I should have been, I kind of just kind of 
looked around and uh, you know just kind of you know man just kind of looking around at who was there whatever um, and it was you know it was it was remarkably different to a what I saw it was 180 degrees different from what I saw growing up um, and uh, and remarkably different um, to to what I saw even four or five years ago um, and I think that um, I, I think that we have to get out of this notion then of uh, of kind of like we have a notion of what makes a good Jew and we have a notion of what a Jew looks like. And we know that uh, we know, again, this is a place, Andres, where we are following secular trends. Right. It, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but in, in, in a few short decades in this country, this country will be majority non-white. Why would we not follow that, right? And which is really, like, we are following that. And so this is an attempt to, you know, not just prepare the community, that sounds ridiculous, but actually, you know, like, where, where are these people, right? Where are they in leadership? Where are they in our organizations? Where are they in, in, in what we're in, in, in serving the community? And for a, for a tradition that likes to count, right? And likes to count Jews, and for demographic studies that like to count Jews, you know, we have plus or minus a million people that we really don't count. Correct. A million people, right? I mean, it is a, it's a disgrace. It, it, it's shocking. So, you know, our goal here is to, is to elevate the issue, to build the field, to work with Ilana Kaufman and her team so that this becomes um, an embed, embedded in the DNA of the, of, of the Jewish community, that it's not just a, you know, a whimsical, well, this is where we're going to throw some money at it here, right? This is this is a significant number. And if you take a million people, you divide that by how many Jews there are in North America, you know, you're talking about 15 to 20% of the population. Right. And and um, and again, it's part of the transformations we were talking before. It's probably a challenge that our forefathers didn't encounter. And yet it's part of, it's going to be, I think, the definition of who's in and who's out of the Jewish people in the next few decades is going to be one of the critical ones that we will need to face. Not only not only in, in ethnical terms, but also in ideological terms, in terms of practice, in terms of Israel diaspora. It's also a great example of a lack of future thinking in the Jewish community. I remember in a previous life sitting at a conference. I'll never forget this. This is going back over 20 years, I believe, and. Gary Tobin of Blessed Memory was speaking and there was a room of about a thousand people and he asked people to sit up, to stand up if they were sitting next to somebody who looked different than they did. And he, you know, what he meant by that was people who were, what he said, people who were, who were not classified as white. And um, I'll never forget it. I think in a room of about over a thousand people, I think three or four people stood up. And he said, this room's going to look very, very different in 20 years' time. Now, the reality is he was half right. It does look a bit different, um, but with the numbers, it should look a lot more different. That's not on him, right? That's on us. Besides the Jews of color, that is, there, as you said, a million people there, it seems to me like a low-hanging fruit in terms of if we do the right thing, we can actually engage those people. Are there any other 
low-hanging fruits, things that we're not looking at, things that could be game changers for the Jewish world if we only looked in that direction? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I don't know if there's game. I, I don't know if there's game changers, um, and um, and 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 even the lowest hanging fruit, you know, requires tremendous amount of effort and work and and and, and hard work. So, um, you know, I, I guess um, my answer to the question is probably, you know, not 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 one that maybe you thought where I would go, which is around. So I, I'm going to make a plug. I I, I receive no. No, no residuals on this. If you're a Jew in North America, and if you're a non-Jew in North America, maybe everybody should read Sarah Harutz's uh, book here all along, um, which is, I think, a magnificent, uh, a, 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 just a magnificent book. You know, you know, not surprisingly brilliantly written. You know, but you know, by a, a yeah. you know, former speechwriter. So you know, it, 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 it's a beautifully written book. But the content of it is, I think, is is somehow related to the lowest hanging fruit, which is really, I think, you know, kind of the work of trying to be the work of the foundation, which is when you're trying to sell something, you have to have two things. You have to have a really, really great product, right? And you have to have a really solid distribution channel. Now, if you don't have the product, you have nothing. You know, you could have the greatest distribution channel on the planet, but if you don't have a good product, so if Judaism is the product, it's a hell of a product, right? It's an incredible product. Now, there are parts of the product that, you know, that you might like more than others, right? But it's a product that we know works. It's a piece of software, whatever, that has stood the test of time with very few updates, etc. So I think the low-hanging fruit is really around, the lowest-hanging fruit is really around the delivery mechanisms to say, you know what? There's actually this thing called Judaism here that can actually help you live your life. And while that might be ritually for some of you, it can help Barry Feinstone be a better husband and be a better boss and be a better friend and be a better son and a better sibling and so on. Um, and where do we go? We, we look around you know, at all other aspects of the world, but to, to paraphrase uh, Sarah or to use Sarah's words, it's here all along. It's in this thing called Judaism. It's actually here, right? And the question really is, how do we somehow make that connection in a way that allows, uh, you know, allows people to, to actually invest in that religion and in that tradition? And I think that it's, it's not low-hanging, because I don't think anything's really low-hanging, but I think it represents the opportunity in, a, in an easy way, which is the product's good. So I think more and more time needs to be spent on the distribution channel side of things um, to figure that out. What, what scares you about the future of the Jewish community and what gives you hope? Um, yeah, so... Um, the scare one, so you're, you're talking to the eternal, the eternal optimist here. And by the way, I think it's sometimes problematic because um, it produces some naivety on my part. Um, I am fundamentally, you know, the glass is always three quarters full. So there isn't much that scares me other than the notion that, uh, that we don't make it through this kind of divide that is happening in the in, in the world today 
where everything is seen through a political lens um, and communities can only take so much. And clearly we're getting to a, a stress level here where, you know, if we were talking in medical terms, there would probably be like a stress fracture. And the question is, does it become a hairline fracture and then does it become a full break? I, I look back at history and I say, you know, we've been here before in our past and we'll get through it again. But it's a rough ride, it's a rough ride living through it. Clearly, I can't not answer the question without talking about the world today and anti-Semitism and the tragedies of what are happening, um, you know, all over the, you know, you know, all over the world. And while I think we need to consistently have our guard up, I also want to, I want to make sure that we don't move away. Um, you know, if we're going to do more in that regard, it needs to be in addition to and not a diversion uh, from. Right. So it goes back to resources. There's enough to do on one, on, on, you know, if we wanted to harden our our communal institutions, for instance, if we chose to go down that route as a community, there's enough money to do that and also to continue to thrive. Um, so, so that's kind of the scare piece. On the hope piece, um, it's a, an incredible time in Jewish life. And I, I think it's hard for sometimes for people to see that given the constant nature of what is going on. I, I look at this now you know, a little bit through the prism of my children. And the opportunities that, that are afforded to them to enact into Jewish life as they move from their teens into their 20s, and, and you know, it's just, it's miraculous. We have built an infrastructure of magnificent uh, programming of, of great things. And I see, um, I, I see a resurgence in, in uh, you know, in, in them about their... Uh, decision to kind of move into Jewish life, not as an obligation, but as a choice out of, uh, you know, out of, out of love. And then the third thing that, that, that I see that it really, you know, gives me hope is this is a generation of people in their late teens and early 20s who actually, you know, I believe fundamentally really want to change the world um, in, a, in a way. I, I think they lived through an economic crisis they watch their families talk about money for the first time. Um, they watch the world and, and disasters happen uh, on Twitter before their, before their very eyes. And their approximation to want to fix it um, is much closer than any previous generations uh, you know, you know, you know, ever had. And I don't think it's a phenomenon um, about, uh, about uh, some of the work that's going on in climate change and some of the work that's going on in... Uh, in gun violence, that it is being led by young people. People say, well, that's always been the case. And it's actually not always been the case. It, it's actually been, you know, an older set of people and sometimes a group of elites, et cetera. This is different. Um, and that gives me tremendous hope for the, you know, tremendous hope for not just the Jewish world, but for the wider world. Thank you, Barry, for this fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thank you, Andres, and thank you for all the work that you and the Jewish Funders Network is doing on behalf of the Jewish community. Much appreciated. Thanks so much to Barry Feinstone for joining us. You can follow his work with the Jean Joseph Foundation at jeanjosephfoundation.org. 
We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, more foreign accent requests, whatever you want to send us. Please write us at podcast at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. Next time, we'll speak with journalist, playwright, and cultural critic, Rochel Kafferson. People are hungry for it. People want Jewish education. So help them. I, I don't understand why that's so... Why is that complicated? I leave you with this thought from my favorite Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Waste no more time arguing about what a good person should be. Be one. So... Keep being one, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives.